So for the last couple of weeks, we've been hearing the story of Abraham from the Bible. And we always like to start off with review. So if you've been here, hopefully you remember some things. If you haven't been here, that's okay. This gives you a chance to hear some of the things we've talked about the last couple of weeks. And so the story of Abraham starts in Genesis chapter 12. And we studied from Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis chapter 14. And the first review question is, list some examples of God's grace to Abraham in Genesis chapters 12 to 14. So we've said the story of Abraham is the story of how God shows his love to people who don't deserve it. What would be some examples of God showing grace to Abraham in the few stories that we've read so far? His age. Yeah. I'm not sure what you mean by that, Karen, but God loves, God loves old people. That's, that's what we see in this So Abraham. Well, not you, but some of the other people around here. He loves. So Abraham, how, do you remember how old he was when God chose him and said, I've got big plans for you? 75. He was 75 when God came to him and said, I've got big plans for you. And I think that's a great example of God's grace. That God didn't choose some 20-year-old guy and say, oh, you've got your own life in front of you. I'm going to use you. He chooses this man, Abraham, who probably thought most of his life was already behind him. And said, I'm going to use you to be a blessing to the world. Excellent. He wasn't even halfway. He wasn't even halfway to how old he got. Yeah. That's true. So Abraham, was it 175 that he lived to? So God surprised him, and he got a really long time yet to live. Good point. Man? When Lot was Excellent. So we're thinking about God's grace to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 14, we hear this story where four kings come all the way from Babylon and conquer much of Palestine, of the land of Canaan, and they take Lot, Abraham's nephew, captive. And you think, wow, this is a pretty big deal, all these kings attacking. And yet, who goes and attacks them and defeats them? Abraham does. And what men did he use? Just the people in his household. He had 318 capable men in his household. And Abraham himself forms an army. And by the power of God, he goes off and he defeats these foreign kings. And you think, wow, this is, this is God's grace. Good. What other examples of God's grace have we seen? Denise? Blessed him with a lot of wealth. Blessed him with a lot of wealth. Possessions and all. Good. And so Abraham... He, we just said he had 318 people in his household. Right? That's a lot of people to have in your household. So he had servants, and don't think of like forced slavery. That's always, when we think of servants and slavery in the United States, we think of what happened in the United States. It's not, that's not how it works. In Abraham, think more of, there's people that Abraham's providing for, it's almost like his own little town moving around. And everybody's got a different job and a different role, and they're working together. And Abraham's their leader, and this is all God's grace. Man? When he lied about Sarah being sister, so that he would not be killed, God didn't kill him. Yeah, good. So the next question was, what what sin did Abraham commit? And I just called you Grandma. Jeez, I just didn't to say that. So, Nada, just, just let us into the next question. And uh, so Abraham actually commits a big sin that the Bible tells us about. And there's a famine, and he goes down to Egypt. That wasn't a sin. But he gets to Egypt, and he's worried that the Egyptians might want to take his wife from him because she was so beautiful. And so he comes up with this plan. Sarah, you say that you're my sister, not my wife. And they lied about it. And this was wrong. Right? And why does the Bible tell us about bad things that people in the Bible do? Why does the Bible show us that Abraham sinned? So we don't they were sinners. To let us know that even what seem like the greatest people in the Bible are sinful just like we are. And who, who's the real hero of the Bible? Jesus. God is. God is the real hero of the Bible. Okay, and so we're talking about Abraham, but he's not really the hero. 
God is. And one of the, the, the examples of God's grace was Abraham goes down to Egypt, he tells this big lie, and what does God do? He blessed him. And so God allowed Abraham in Egypt to accumulate a whole bunch of animals and wealth. And, and so in spite of Abraham's sin, the fact that Abraham didn't deserve it, God still blessed him. It was all by his grace. There's one really big example of God's grace that nobody's mentioned yet. Maybe the biggest example of all of God's grace to Abraham. The promise. And so the fact that God chose Abraham to be the ancestor of the promised Savior of Jesus, that's ultimately behind the whole story of Abraham. And why did God choose Abraham? Of all the people in the world, why did God say, Abraham, you're the one that one of your descendants is going to be the Savior of the world? Why did God choose Abraham? Because he was super faithful. He was radically faithful. But, so, so then says, because Abraham believed and he was faithful. We're going to hear about Abraham's faith today. So there's no doubt about Abraham's faith. It's just, which do we hear about first? Abraham's faith or God choosing Abraham? <laughs> God choosing Abraham comes even before we hear anything about Abraham's faith. So we're going to hear a lot about his faith today. But God chose Abraham by his grace. He could have chose anybody to be the ancestor of the Savior, and God chose Abraham. That's a powerful example of God's grace. You remembered some things. That's always good when people remember some things. One more thing. Last time we ended, there was this big battle. Abraham rescued Lot from these kings, and it's kind of impressive how Abraham with his household can defeat these kings. But at the end of it, this strange thing happens. After winning a great battle, Abraham gave a tenth of everything to a mysterious person named Melchizedek. Who is Melchizedek, and how does he make us, how does he make us think of Jesus? So, have you heard of the name Melchizedek? Yeah. It's a strange name, right? It, it, it doesn't show up often in the Bible, but when it does, it's, it's always in a really important context. Melchizedek just shows up out of the blue. And Abraham says, I'm going to give you a tenth of everything I got from winning this victory. And then he goes away. And from what we talked about last time, how does Melchizedek make us think of Jesus? Both a priest and a king. Excellent. He's a priest and a king. The name Melchizedek, although it sounds strange to us, it would not have sounded strange if you knew Hebrew, because it's just two words together. It means king of righteousness. And so he's a king of righteousness, but when he's described in the Bible, we're told he's a priest of God most high. And so here's a strange person who's a king, and he's a priest. Which is what Jesus is for us. He's our king and he's our priest who died on the cross for us. Do you remember where Melchizedek was king of? He's king of Salem, which we know better by a different name. Jerusalem. This is the first time we hear about Jerusalem in the Bible. Suddenly this strange guy shows up and says, I'm the king of Jerusalem. Which of course we think of Jesus when we think of Jerusalem. Right? The Bible also makes a connection between Melchizedek and Jesus in that we don't hear anything about Melchizedek's ancestry. He just shows up. And the book of Hebrews says, this is a little bit like Jesus, that Jesus has been around forever. Right? So there's a strange figure who makes us think about Jesus. We see that name Melchizedek show up later in the Bible talking about Jesus. And I've had the one question from you. So I always like when you ask a question. I don't like when I'm not able to answer it, so that sometimes happens. So, last time Denise asked, well, what does Jerusalem mean? So he said that Melchizedek was king of Salem. Oops, wow, it's a touch screen. That's cool. <laughs> king of Salem. And do you remember what I said the word Salem means? Peace. Peace. Except like shalom, maybe you've heard. It's the Hebrew word for peace, shalom. Salem means peace. So Denise asked, well, what... What happens when you add Jeru on the front? And I didn't know. So I looked it up. That, that first part of the word, Jeru, it means foundation. And so Jerusalem means 
foundation of peace. Okay, and we're not told like when did that get added on or why was that added on, but so Jerusalem, the city name means foundation of peace. There's some argument that some people think that Salem was also a name for a, a like a Canaanite god. Like maybe there was a god of peace. So sometimes people speculate maybe it was originally named after this god of peace, the foundation of Salem. But the name, it means foundation of peace. Thank you. You're welcome. Good question. All right. Are we ready to go on to something new? So today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 15. So open up your Bible. Genesis is the first book. We're going to study chapter 15 today. So, so far as we've heard about Abraham, we've had a bunch of kind of stories. We hear about him moving all over the place. We hear about him going to Egypt and just doing this and that. Today, we don't have a story about Abraham doing a bunch of stuff. We have a story about Abraham talking with God. And so when people look at Abraham's story, often people will say the most important part of Abraham's story is Genesis chapter 15. But, since it's Abraham talking with God, it's not maybe so exciting. It's not we're going to go off and fight somebody. It's God and Abraham discussing God's promises. That's what we have in Genesis chapter 15. So we'll read it bit by bit. I'll start just by reading verse 1. So Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. So God comes to Abram to talk to him. Right, we've talked about this before. Here we see the name Abram. Later on it's going to get changed to Abraham. Just to not confuse ourselves, we're just using the name Abraham. His more common name. We hear that Abram was afraid. Somebody guess why he was afraid? Exactly. He didn't have a child yet. Alright, but we got to read the next couple of verses, but... Terry knew what comes next. Look at verses 2 and 3. Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. And so what Abraham is, is afraid of is he's afraid I, I don't have a child. Okay, and remember at least how old Abraham was? At least 75, a little time's passed since then, so a little over 75. We talked last time about how old his wife was. Sarah, how old was she? She was 10 years younger, but she's still 65, and clearly already in, at this time it was pretty old for someone 65 to think about having a child. And, and so this was on Abraham's mind, I'm sure it was on Sarah's mind. It was, we're, we're old, we don't have a child. Right? Now, why would that have made them afraid? Like, what was the big deal? We don't have a child. Why was that a cause for them to be afraid? Denise? He's very wealthy. He has a lot of possessions. Who's going to inherit all of this and take care of the people? And so, just from an earthly point of view, um, when there's a husband and wife, it's a good thing to have children. And in those days, we've, we've used the word, like, patriarch. It was a patriarchal system, like the that the man, the head of the household, was supposed to be the one running everything. And here's Abraham, the head of this, not just the household, but he's kind of like the mayor of a city. And his son's supposed to be the one to take that over, and he doesn't have a son. And that's concerning, right? Who's going to carry on my family and my family line? So I was thinking more of their age. He's thinking it's going to be I mean, it seems like impossible that they'd have a child, right? There's another thing, though, that made this a big deal, right? You know, we got to think with Abraham. We're always thinking about God's promises and thinking spiritually. Why did Abraham need to have a son? God said he would. Because God told him he would. 
Right? And I wonder if that would make it even more fearful for Abraham. God had come to Abraham and said, your descendants are going to be a blessing to the earth. And Abraham looks around, and how many descendants does he have? Zero. And so how does he feel? Right? Not only do I not have a son just because it's nice to have a son and somebody to inherit my stuff, but God said I'd have a son. I don't have a son. That makes me afraid. He, Abraham's got it all figured out. You know, just like his plan when he goes to Egypt and he figures out my wife's going to be my, my, my sister. And what's Abraham's plan? Who's going to inherit his stuff? His servant. He's got it all figured out. I've got this head servant and he seems like a nice guy and he can inherit my stuff. But he's not my son. And Abraham's afraid. And God comes to him. And he makes some beautiful promises. So if you look back at verse 1. We went over it pretty fast. What does God call himself for Abraham? Abraham, don't be afraid. I'm I'm your shield and your very great reward. So let's, let's think about those two words. God says to Abraham, Abraham, I am your shield. Why would that have been a nice thing to hear from God? When I hear the word shield, I think of protection. Okay, and now, why would Abraham have needed protection? He, he's not in the best of times right now. He's, he's getting old, so the being protected until God sends the son, is, that's a pretty big deal for Abraham. Good. So, now, I don't know that any of you can relate to this, but he was growing old. Okay, now, you can imagine if this were happening to you, you know, the thought of things can happen to me, right? A lot of things can happen to me. And I need, I need a shield. Uh, just as an example of things that can happen to me, what just happened in the previous chapter? For those of you who were here last week, what, what's the previous chapter all about? War of the Nineteen. War! People coming from the other side of the world and just taking over everything and taking people captive and destroying cities. And right here's Abraham. How big of city walls did Abraham have? He lived in a tent. Right? So here's Abraham with his little group of people. And God says, Abraham, I'm your shield. Right? That must have been a beautiful comfort for Abraham to hear. And then God adds to that, and I'm your very great reward. Just in the context, what must that have, have meant to Abraham? God, God's saying, I'm, I'm your reward. What was God saying to Abraham? I'm your prize. I'm I am all you need. God's coming to Abraham and saying, Abraham, I am all you need. Was that true? Yes. Right? Is that an easy thing to really believe in our hearts? No. No. But Abraham, I'm your shield. I'm your very great reward. Even if Abraham wouldn't have had a son, did he still have all that he needed? Yes, he did. Okay, and you think for you and me? We have all sorts of things that we have in the back of my mind. My, my, my life will be complete if I'm able to, and all of us feel that differently. Maybe some of us would say the same thing. If I weren't able to have children, I haven't been able to. Or maybe there's a hundred other things that go in that line. Right? And I think God would say the same thing to us. Don't, don't be afraid. Maybe someday I'll give you children. Maybe someday you'll accomplish this. Maybe someday you'll get to live here. Maybe someday these things will happen. But even if they don't, I am your very great reward. You have God. God's promises. That's the biggest prize that you need. Questions about those two words? I'm your shield. Your very great reward. Right, before we move on, what promises has God made to you when you feel afraid? And before you answer, I want you to, to do this with the people around you. See if you, with the people around you, can come up with some promises that God has made to you. And hopefully you see this is pretty, this is pretty practical because we do feel afraid. And people around us feel afraid. What would be promises from God 
that you can tell yourself or to tell the people around you when you feel afraid. All right? Take two minutes and try to think of something. Absolutely true. Good. Nothing can snatch us out of his hand. Good. Good night. I suppose, Holly, I should ask, where does that one come from? <laughs> I said that there is a verse in the Bible that says that I can't think of exactly where that I, comes from either. I think it's a psalm. A psalm. I think there's part of it comes from Jesus when he's talking about being our shepherd. Yeah. And if we're in Jesus, no one can. But I forget exactly what reference it is. But that's that's a promise from God. How about one of the simplest of all? So God so loved the world. So God so loved the world. And if God loves the world, Danny, whom does He love? Us. Us. Right. That's what's great about that passage. God loves the whole world. That means God loves me and God loves you. Another verse, Brenda. Proverbs three five. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And how often do we look at life and we say, this does not make sense. I don't understand this. And God says, that's okay, I do. I understand it. Let's trust in me. Jonah? Uh, at that time I will gather you. At that time I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. That's a good promise. Where's that from? Zephaniah 3.20. Zephaniah 3.22. Alright. Man, Grandma. Great Grandma. Great Grandma. Do not be afraid even if the mountains fall into the sea. Good. So do not be afraid even if the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. And you think, you know, if that happened, I'd be pretty scared. For the mountains to get to the sea, they have to go over Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> just to make it there. And you think, 
don't even have to be afraid. Okay, so the point of this is all of us have days like Abraham. Right? When you just sit there and you think, well, I don't have this. I don't have that. I'm missing this. How am I going to make it through? And it's God's promises that allow us to make it through. And we just started our catechism classes this last week, and I tell our catechism students, you need to memorize Bible verses. That's part of being in catechism class. And um, hopefully as adults, you can see the point to that too. Right? You want to have these verses in your, in your mind and in your heart so you can speak them to people. God gives us comfort when we're afraid. Let's keep going. So Abraham's scared. He's not going to have a son. Eliezer, his servant's going to be his heir. God says, I'm your shield and your great reward. And God says more. So verses 4 to 5. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir. But a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. So would Eliezer of Damascus be Abraham's heir? No. No, why not? God says, One of your own flesh and blood is going to be here. You're going to actually be the the physical father of somebody who's going to inherit everything. Right? And then he takes him outside and has him look at the stars. Why does he take him outside and look at the stars? Because God likes to use pictures. You see this throughout the Bible. Right? God likes to give us a promise and then he likes to point out with pictures and so Abraham look up at the stars and not only are you just going to have one son but one day your offspring are going to be like the stars in the sky. You think that must have been a really cool promise. Right? Do you know if you were to go out on a clear night and look up at the sky, do you know how many stars supposedly you can see? So I never counted them personally, but I'm told it's about 2,000. And then, now this is, you got to get outside this. I mean, if you're right here, you probably wouldn't see 2,000. But if you're in a dark place and you look up at the sky, what I've been told is that just with your, your eyes, you can see like two to 3,000 stars. I don't know. Of course, it all depends on you know, where you're at and how busy cloudy you're not. So about 2,000. All right? With telescopes and everything, uh, scientists estimate that there's at least that number of stars. You know what that number is? Hundred billion. A hundred billion. That's a hundred, at least a hundred billion. And that's one where I think that the more we build bigger telescopes, that that number will constantly change, because the further we're able to see, the more wide the universe is. So vast. It's just it's such a testimony to how big and powerful God is. So there's a whole bunch of stars. That's the point. And what was God's point to Abraham? You're going to have a whole bunch of descendants, more than you're going to want to sit down and count. Okay, so, of course, God's point isn't, well, if you look up, you can maybe see 2,132 stars, and that's exactly how many offspring. That's not, it's not the point. And, well, today, oh, Abraham did not have 100 billion descendants. And maybe we'd say, well, not yet. Right? Who knows how long the world, but, but the point isn't the number. The point is, Abraham, you're going to have so many, you're not going to count them. Right? It's not like one son. It's going to be, you don't have enough fingers and toes to count all the people that are going to come from your family. Right? What a promise. And then we get to the key verse. One little verse. That's one of the most important verses in the Bible. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, which says, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited to him his righteousness. Right now, on the surface, it maybe doesn't sound like the most important verse in the Bible. It sounds simple and short. And, but this is a verse that's repeated in the Bible and shown to be very, very important. First of all, just a little, little fact 
This is the first time in the Bible that we hear the word. It's like there's not that many words in that sense. Which one could it be? <laughs> not righteousness. It's a different one. Believe. This is the first time in the Bible that we hear about believing. Abram believed the Lord and credited him as righteousness. Now, before we move on from that, what's a what's a synonym of the word believe? What does believe mean? Faith. Excellent. Faith. So to have faith and to believe is the same thing. And maybe if you're looking for just a similar word, a great word for believe is the word trust. It's not the word know. Sometimes we make believing and knowing the same thing. The Bible says that's not the same thing. Believing is more than knowledge. Believing is trust. Right? And you think of God just told Abraham, you're an old man. You think it's impossible to have children. You're going to have descendants like the stars in the sky. What did Abraham need to do? Trust. He had to trust that promise. Okay, so it's the first time in the Bible we hear the word believe. But you picked out also the word righteousness. So Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. What does the word righteousness mean? So to be not guilty. How would you say that in a positive way? A right relationship with God. To be right all the time. Right? We've got the word righteous. Right? People used to use that, didn't they? Kind of like, oh, that's righteous. Right? Some of you used that word. I know that you did. Right? But to be, to be righteous, to have righteousness, it's, it's really to say to be perfect. To be perfect in God's eyes. If someone has righteousness, they have perfection. Perfection in God's eyes. How do we usually think that people get righteousness? So if somebody's going to be right, if they're going to be perfect, how do we usually think that that happens? By doing the right things. Okay, so we think, well, who's a good person? Well, they're a good person because they do good things. Who's righteous? Well, they're righteous because they always do the right thing. Right? That's what we usually think. People get righteousness by doing or saying or thinking the right things. Then they're righteous. But this verse says something totally different. How did Abraham get righteousness? From God. From God. From God. God credited to him. God gave it to him. Right? Was Abraham righteous because he always did the right things? No, we just heard about the wrong things and he did. Right? He lied about his wife in Egypt. Even in this story, he's doubting God. Right? He's afraid. Abraham didn't always do the right things. His righteousness didn't come from his actions. It came from God. God gave it to him. And what was the, the moment that God gave it to him? What what led God to give Abraham righteousness? Because he believed. So when Abraham believed in God, God counted that faith as righteousness. And so this is this concept in the Bible that in God's eyes, human beings are right and perfect, righteous, not because we've done all the right things, but through faith in God. Righteousness comes from God to us through faith in God. Okay, do you understand that? Right, so I say this is a foundational verse of the Bible. Right, I put it in my own words. That righteousness comes to us through faith in God. Did you understand what that said? Okay, so are you righteous? Well, that seems like a bold claim, really. You're righteous? Why? Through faith in Christ. Right? So if you say, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm a child of God, I'm, I'm holy in God's eyes, you're not saying, well, look at me, look how good I am. No, this is God's gift to me through faith in Jesus. When someone believes in God, God counts that as righteousness. Okay, understand this? 
So I've got up here, evaluate. People in the Old Testament were saved the same way that we are today. Yes, that's true. Now, you should be aware that people are always criticizing the Bible, and even Christians today find ways to pick the Bible apart. One really popular thing today is to talk about dispensations. You ever heard that word before? Dispensations? So even in the Christian church, this is especially popular in the South here, in our area, with conservative Christians. The idea that at different times, God has dealt with people differently. And so at this point in history, this is how people were saved. And then at this point in history, this is how people are saved. And now, for us today, this is how people are saved. God has had different dispensations. He's had different ways of dealing with people throughout history. And they'll even count them off. There's been this many different ways that God's dealt with people. And Is that true? No. No. From beginning to end of the Bible, every person who's saved and has been a child of God has been a child of God by the same way. And what is it? By believing in God's promises. And so Abraham was declared righteous by believing God's promise of a Savior. How are you declared righteous? By believing God's promise of a Savior. We have different perspectives. For Abraham, it was a future event. God says someone is going to come and save me. I believe that. For us, it's a past event. The Bible says Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe that. Both, though, were saved in the same way. Focused on Christ. Okay, so be cautious. If ever you hear a Christian pastor or preacher talk about, well, you know, right, God used to save people this way, but now it's this way. Right? Be cautious about that. All right? People have always been saved, even back in Abraham's day, by believing in God's promises. Any questions about that? Yes, Dave. But and God gives us the faith as well. So the Holy Spirit gives us the faith that gives us the righteousness. Right. So, so it all comes from God. Even faith is a gift from God. Right? Come to church today. We'll hear about that at church today. <laughs> it's the Holy Spirit's job to point us to Jesus. We couldn't believe in Jesus on our own. Right? So even Abraham, he needs God working in his heart. To trust in God's promises. Excellent. The story goes on. I'm going to keep reading. It gets a little bit strange, just as a little warning. But when we talk about it and understand it, we'll understand why it sounds strange. So we're at verse 7. He also said to him, so God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and take possession of it. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half, then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Sound good? <laughs> Sounds a little strange, right? Is that what I said? Sounds strange. First of all, Abraham had a second concern. What was the second? He was concerned about having a son. God says, no, I'm going to give you a son. What's his second concern? Am I really going to get to have a home? Okay, now realize, Abraham is this man in the Bible who never has a permanent home. He lives in a tent his whole life. He never builds a house. He never builds a city. God promises him, your descendants are going to have this land. And this matters, right? To have a place. To have a home. Are we really going to get this? Right? And you'd expect God to say back, yes. But, remember how we just said, like with the stars, God likes to use pictures. He gives us powerful. He doesn't say yes. He says, bring me a whole bunch of animals. And what God is doing is he's making a covenant with Abraham. Right? Now the word covenant, this is a Bible word. 
We don't often use it today. What does the word covenant mean? Promise. Yeah. So somebody said promise. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. What a covenant really means, it's a, a contract. It's an agreement. A covenant is a contract or an agreement. All right, do we, do we ever use the word covenant today? I heard somebody use the word covenant yesterday. I did. And I was thinking about this Bible study, so when he said it, I was like, yes. I know I Somebody said it. He was talking about his homeowners association. And so we were at somebody's house, and some people from my son's soccer team invited us over. It was great. And he was just talking about his house, and he was saying, we, we live in this neighborhood, and it's a covenant community. What does that mean? There's a contract on how you're supposed to live there. There's a contract on how you have to live here. Actually, if you go on a church on Mingo and turn right, right over the turnpike, one of the first subdivisions over there has a big sign that says Covenant Community. And so if you're going to live here, you have to sign a contract. And we have a whole bunch of rules. Uh, I shouldn't say a whole bunch. We have some rules <laughs> that you're going to follow, right? Your grass is going to be like this. Your garbage cans are going to be in this location. Your house and your shingles are going to be this color you're going to you're going to promise to do these things and in return you get to live here and you get to use the pool you get to play on the playground it's a covenant it's an agreement okay so we can understand that god is making a, a covenant with abraham so what's the deal with the animals he doesn't say here's a piece of paper sign here he says, bring me a heifer, it's a cow, a goat, and a ram, and a dove, and a pigeon. Right? It seems from history that this was not something unique right here. This was actually how people in Canaan, 4,000 years ago, would make a covenant. How they would sign a contract. And instead of signing a piece of paper, they would cut animals in half and put them on two different sides. And why do you think they would do that? So if you walk between the animals, you're signing your name on the dotted line. What's the point of all this? If you break the contract, you look like the animals. Ah, good. If you break the contract, you're going to end up like those animals. So maybe people might start with, if you break the contract, your animals will start out like those animals. <laughs> but then ultimately moving to... You're going to end up like this. So how serious was this? This was pretty serious. Right? And so we're making this agreement that the penalty for breaking this agreement is going to be death for somebody or something. Right? This is that serious. And why do you think people in ancient times would, would sign a covenant like that? Because it was serious. Because it was said, you know, for us today, you sign a piece of paper. How much emotion goes into signing that piece of paper? Okay, how much of your heart is involved? In it? I suppose it depends on what the piece of paper is. But you can sign a piece of paper pretty mindlessly, right? We have to sign our name often, all the time. And if before you got married, maybe maybe we could do it during the wedding ceremony itself. <laughs> Right? If we remove the first rows of chairs in the front of the church and there's plenty of cows around, right? You can take some cows and just cut them in half and lay them out there. And if, if you looked at that as you were making your promises to each other, it would be a pretty powerful thing, wouldn't it? Okay, this is serious. Right? So Abraham, this whole can I be sure? Is this really gonna happen? And God says, Alright, Abraham, let's do let's do what people do when they're gonna make the most serious agreement around. Get these animals, spread them out, and, and we'll go from there. Follow what's happening? People wonder, why didn't they cut the birds in half? And I know that was on your mind too, I mean, just this whole time, I and mean, why didn't they cut the birds in half? And it seems like people's best explanation is, well, they probably were too small, and there were two birds, so there probably one bird was laying on each side. We didn't cut those in two. Okay. In the 
Southern California, I don't know, Los Angeles, San Diego, to be spent on the sidewalk and get fined. Fast, yeah, so Terry just mentions people can take those covenants and homeowners associations pretty seriously, can't they? So he mentions somebody in California spitting on the sidewalk and getting fined for that. You can't do that in our neighborhood. I mean, I've heard about kind of wars about where do you keep your garbage can and what color do the shingles need to be in. So you just think if people take seriously a contract that they sign about where you live, here Abraham and God making a contract. This is a big deal. Okay, we have to see how it goes. So, we're going to keep reading the next 10 verses. Chapter 15, verses 12 to 21. So we've got these animals spread out. Genesis 15, verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set, and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. And so, of course, in every contract, every covenant, there's there's words there, right? You sign a piece of paper, it's going to say something on it. And so God, God speaks the words of the covenant. And he says a lot of things. And so let's look at each of these phrases. He says to Abraham, your descendants are going to be strangers in a country not their own. God's talking about the future. What's he talking about? Excellent Egypt. So eventually, Abraham's family, after Abraham has died, is going to end up in Egypt. And they're going to ultimately be slaves there. And then you have the story of Moses, right? The ten plagues. Do you remember where in Abraham's family the Israelites end up going to Egypt? Who was the leader of the Israelites at that time? Jacob was. So Abraham, Abraham's son is Isaac, Isaac's son is Jacob. So when Abraham's grandson is now the leader of the family, that's when they end up going to Egypt. God said that in the fourth generation, they'll come back. And this is always, what, is, what do you mean by a generation? And so sometimes by generation, people think of well, how, how long a person lives. So like lifespans put together. Another way to think of a generation, sometimes people think of it as, well, when is the, the next generation born? So when you give birth to a child. Okay, either way with Abraham, how old was Abraham when he gave birth to Isaac? We haven't got there yet. But you know. Over 70 something. He's going to be 100 years old. So he's going to have to wait 25 more years from where we are now. He's going to be 100 years old. So four generations, about how many years is that? 300. 400 years. 400 years. And do you know how long the Israelites spent in Egypt before Moses led them out? 400 years. It was 430 years. So God's prophesying about this, telling Abraham about the future. He has this phrase, you're not going to get the land yet because the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. This is really an interesting phrase. So the Amorites... As a name for all the people living in Canaan at that time. God says, Abraham, you're not actually going to have all the land yet because the sin of the Amorites hasn't reached its full measure. How was that actually very kind words of God to the people who were there? The Amorites still have time of grace, time to come from the to be saved. 
Excellent. When Joshua leads the Israelites in Israel, God's going to command that they conquer all the other nations. And God says, it's not time for that yet. All of these other nations, I'm going to give them more time. Of course, always to turn to the Lord and repent. Right? It also is a time for their sin to even increase. So God says, you're going to get the land, Abraham, but not, not yet. Right? I'm, I'm still patient with the people who are living here. It's not time yet. And finally, from the Wadi of Egypt to the Great River, here we've got our map. So, just to review some things. Remember? You're sitting in the front row. I don't know what button you're pushing, but stop it. Stop pushing buttons. Do you remember where Abraham started? Ur of the Ur, he starts way over here. Ur. Then where did he move after he was in Ur? Here and way up there, and then he moves down here to Israel, right? Then here's Egypt. So the Israelites are going to end up in Egypt. Moses is going to lead them back to Israel. So God makes this promise that at one point your land, the land of Israel, will be from the Wadi of Egypt to the Great River. So do you know what that's talking about? People argue about what the Wadi of Egypt is. The Wadi is just like a little river. And so people, is that talking about the Nile? Anyway, it seems like one border is going to be Egypt. And then the Great River, it's, we're even told what it is. That's the Great River. Euphrates, which is way over here. And so God says, Abraham, at some point, your people are going to rule this whole territory from Egypt to the Euphrates River. Today, it'd be like from Egypt. Egypt is still a country today. Egypt to Iraq. More or less. This is going to be the territory that you're going to cover. And so, did God's people ever actually hold that territory? Yeah. Yes. But for not very long. Okay, can, can you think of, do, do you know which kings expanded the territory of Israel to its greatest boundaries? David. So, always guess King David. If it's a king and it's something good, think King David. So King David and then Solomon. So ultimately during the reign of Solomon, because of what David accomplished, during the reign of Solomon, that was Solomon's kingdom. From Egypt all the way up to the Euphrates River. And it didn't last long because God's people turned against him and he let their enemies attack them. But it seems like later on, during the reign of Jeroboam II, there are two different Jeroboams who are kings. During the reign of Jeroboam II, Israel again had great military success and expanded all the way to the Euphrates River, at least for a little while. So these are God's promises. All right, your people are going to go to Egypt. They'll be there four generations, 400 years. Right? I'm still being patient with the people in this promised land. And one day, your people are going to have this big kingdom. Follow all that? Thinking about what God says, it makes me think of this verse in the New Testament. It says, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14, verse 22. That's just a really key verse in the Bible. How does that apply to the ancient Israelites? Clearly, God, God loves Abraham. God loves his people. God wants to bless them. and So it all went smooth, right? All great. No. Right? How did God bring his blessings on the Israelites? Well, what did they have to go through? 430 years of slavery. 430 years in a foreign country as foreigners, part of that, as slaves, and then they get out, and it went really smooth, right? With Moses just leading them right to the promised land, yeah, real quick, and 40 years. No, 40 years wandering in the desert, and then conquering the land, and then having good kings and bad kings, and it's through many hardships that we must enter the kingdom of God. That's how it worked for God's people in the Old Testament. Do you think that's true for us today? Yeah. Yes. Okay. God loves you. God has beautiful promises for you. God has a wonderful future planned out for you. But it's not going to go like this. Right? It's going to go like this. And it's through many hardships that we enter the kingdom of God. And so what does it call for? What do we need to have? Faith, trust. Faith and trust in God. And patience. 
So we still have these animals sitting there on the ground. And you have to notice something really important. Who actually walks through the animals? God does. So if you look at verse 17, the sun had set, darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed through the pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. And so in the end, it's only God who walks through these animal carcasses. Who doesn't walk through? Abraham. Abraham. And now this would have been strange, because if you're making an agreement, how many people need to be involved? Two. How many people need to do things? Two. And so they're both supposed to walk through, right? Right? We're both doing this together. I'll do my part. You do your part. In this covenant that God was making with Abraham, who was going to do everything? God was. And he shows that to Abraham from the start. Right? God says, Abraham, I'm walking. You don't have to. Right? So did God's grace to Abraham depend on what Abraham would do? No. It was all God, which is really a beautiful thing. Alright? And so this is where you get to the end. God's covenant with Abraham was what phrase might we put in there? A blank of blank. Someone said it before, and I said no. I said, talk about that later. Promise. So God's covenant with Abraham was a promise of grace. Right Now I said the word covenant doesn't mean promise. It means contract. It means two people doing something. But this covenant that God made with Abraham, it was a one-sided covenant. It was a promise. It was a promise of grace. Abraham, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to make your descendants like the stars of the sky. One of your descendants is going to be the promised Savior. Your people are going to inherit this land. I'm going to do it all. And you're going to do... I'm not going to do anything. I'm doing this for you. It's a promise of grace. Okay. Now, one, one connection to the New Testament before we actually open up to the New Testament. Right? This, this word covenant, we hear about it in the Bible. In the New Testament, Jesus said it. When was a time when Jesus talked about a covenant? At the Last Supper. So the night before that Jesus died on the cross and then he was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks and he said, this is my body given for you. And then he took a cup and he gave thanks. And what did he say? This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. And in the Lord's Supper, right, is it a contract that we do this and Jesus does this? No. It's just like this covenant. It's God's promise. When you receive the Lord's Supper, what do you receive? Jesus' body and blood for the forgiveness of sins. And what do you have to do to get that? Nothing. Just receive it. Just receive it by faith. Right? Which the Bible does not describe as something that we do. Right? So it's a covenant of God's grace. Understand all this? So, so baptism is certainly a covenant too. I'm trying to think. I don't. I don't know that the Bible actually uses the yeah. word covenant, but we would describe it as a covenant. Yeah, baptism is God's promise to us. His covenant. Yeah, excellent. I want you to open up your Bible now to the Book of Romans, chapter four. And when we started talking about Abraham a couple weeks ago, we said Abraham's mentioned all over the Bible, and Abraham is actually mentioned a whole bunch in the New Testament, which is unexpected. We figure in the New Testament we wouldn't need to worry about Abraham. But Abraham's mentioned in the New Testament, so if you open up to Romans, you find the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. And Romans... Chapter 4, the Apostle Paul talks all about Abraham. And he focuses on this chapter, Genesis chapter 15. And he applies what it means for Christians today. And so the Bible takes this covenant God made with Abraham, and it says this is the covenant God's made with all of us. 
All right, so we could spend a long time studying this chapter. We will in a couple weeks on Wednesday night. Because in our Wednesday night Bible study, we're going through the Book of Romans. So we'd love to have you join us. Wednesdays at 6. Today, we're just going to go through it really quickly. But just to see the connections between Abraham and Jesus and us. All right, Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Does that sound familiar? So the Bible is quoting this very verse from Genesis. Look at verse 4. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. See how Paul's explaining this? He says this phrase, Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. You don't credit something if something's, somebody's earned it. If Abraham has earned righteousness, you just give it to him as a wage. But just the language that's used, this is a gift. God gives this gift to those who believe in him. All right, keep going. Verse 6. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. So Paul says, you know, the whole Bible talks like this. When David says who's blessed, David doesn't say blessed are all the people who do the right things. Blessed are all the people who are good. Who does David say are blessed? Believers. Those who have their sins forgiven. Right? So being blessed in the Bible isn't the result of me doing all the right things. It's the result of God's grace. Keep going. Verse 9. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who are not only circumcised, but also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So you realize in the New Testament times, this whole topic of circumcision was a big deal. It's not really a big deal to us today. But in Paul's day, Jews were saying, if you want to be God's people, you have to be circumcised if you're a man. And Paul just asked the question, was Abraham part of God's family before or after he got circumcised? And Genesis chapter 15 comes before there's any mention of Abraham being circumcised. And so God says you become a person of God completely apart from, from this. You become a person of God by, by faith in God's promises. Alright, let's keep going. Verse 13. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our Father in the sight of God in whom he believed. And the Lord gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham and hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. And he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why 
it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were not written for him alone, but also to us, to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So there's so much deep thought in here, but can you see this connection that these words, he believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. They're not just for Abraham. They're for everybody. All believers. And we also see, why do we call Abraham Father Abraham? What does the Bible say? Who are Abraham's descendants? Everyone who believes in Jesus. And how many nations can you find Christians in today? All nations. So why is Abraham called the father of all nations? Because he has spiritual descendants everywhere around the world. Everywhere people believe in Jesus. There are children of God by faith. People who are righteous in God's sight. Have any last questions or comments? Yeah. It's a question about covenant. Mm -hmm. The first covenant between Abraham and God, when Jesus said this is the new covenant, yeah. did that mean that the old covenant was complete? Excellent. So Jesus, when he gives the Lord's Supper, he says, this is the new covenant. My blood. You have to understand, God made multiple covenants with the Israelites. So what we're hearing is this covenant of grace where God says to Abraham, you're righteous by faith. Right? Later, God is going to make a, a covenant with the Israelites at Mount Sinai. And in that covenant, it's going to be a real covenant where it's two sides. And God is going to tell the Israelites, if you obey my commands, the Ten Commandments, you will always be my people. And I will always be your God. And did the Israelites keep their side of the covenant? So that covenant was broken. So that, that covenant was broken. But then Jesus says, I'm giving you a new covenant, which is when you've broken God's commands, I'm going to forgive all your sins through my blood, shed on the cross, and the Lord's Supper. Okay, so there's, there's different covenants as you go through the Bible. Do you understand? And this one, though, is this covenant of grace. It's God's promise. And it's still in, in effect today. Paul says so. This promise to Abraham is God's promise to us. Believe, and you're perfect in God's sight. Good questions. Come back next week. Let's close with a prayer. Dear God, it's a blessing for us to read your word and to read this, this chapter about your covenant with Abram. It's amazing to see how this covenant wasn't a two-sided contract. It wasn't, Abraham, if you do this, then I'll do this. It was a promise. That you promised that you would be his God and sent him a savior. And it wasn't based on what Abraham did at all. You've made that same agreement with us. You sent Jesus to be our Savior and you promised eternal life and forgiveness through faith in his blood. We pray, dear Father, that you give us faith in you and that you help us to see your grace, your undeserved love for us in our lives. May we all be children of Abraham through faith in, in the promised Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.